Hello and welcome to the Dumb It Down podcast. I'm your host, Eric Larson, and we're here to talk with young professionals to see how their personal decisions affected their past, present, and future careers. Today, I'm joined by my friend David Scaresbrick, who I've known for a long time growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he went on to go to Chapel Hill for two years, App State for another three, I think. Uh, doing English and becoming an English teacher with a focus on modern literature and a passion around Shakespeare. So very different than my typical engineering guests and different from myself, but I think he, uh, he has a lot of good information around what it's like to be a teacher, what it's like to be in academia, and just an interesting career path. So love to uh, welcome David to the show. Hello and welcome to the Dumb It Down podcast. I'm your host, Eric Larson, and joined by a longtime friend of mine who's been eagerly awaiting his chance to be on the podcast. Kind of avid listener, first time caller, David Scarisberg. Thank you so much for having me. You stole my bit. I was going to do the longtime listener, first time caller. Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> run it back. Run it back. Edit Go this ahead. out. <laughs> yeah, no. So, yeah, you, you've heard some of my other episodes. David knows that I'm stuck in corporate world, as are many of my friends and our friends growing up, and went a different direction. So we'll dig into that. But first, got to tell a little bit about uh, our, our background. So my dad actually remembers you knocking on my door when we were like 12 years old because I moved to the neighborhood. Yep. And that's where it all began. Tresantin Drive. I guess we just doxed ourselves and our families. But, um, you know, yeah, it's no, I, I mean, I distinctly remember top of the street because I had just moved in too relatively recently uh, and I did not have a lot of friends in the neighborhood. Um, and then I, I think, yeah, we were we were first contact and that was sort of the the contact point for the big sweeping neighborhood crew for me anyway. Like you were always established. You had the gang around. I had the old gang and then you were yeah, part of the new gang and then. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I played N64 at your place, and then eventually <laughs> Swim Team was uh, was where many fond memories were made. I a lot of fond memories. I don't know that any of them were were due particularly to like my my swimming performance. <laughs> I do like remember that. a lot of like hyping up with boomboxes over uh, the medley relay, but I always appreciated that because you and I were not uh, year round swimmers, but all of our friends were. So we did kind of we were we were sort of the B medley. I, I took a lot of solace in knowing that Eric Larson was going to be in the med in the medley B railer with me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Yeah, same thing. Because right, our our Craven friends, James was on a previous episode. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, all that swimmers, year rounds, athletes, and you know, we we did what we could as cleanup. But we had the boombox and the music. I mean, we drove that. That's what's important. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like, look at me. I'm I'm not bringing that the athletic prowess to really. <laughs> I, I am nothing if not a caricature of myself, right? <laughs> Exactly. Very comfortable. Very comfortable op occupying this space. We're we're focused on other things other than athletics these days. Uh, yeah, different pursuits. There you go. That's hey. As the well, we'll we'll get to the profession, but David's vocabulary <laughs> is definitely the best that we've had on the podcast. So I, that 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 is an honor that you give me. I don't know that I earn it, but we'll I'll do my best. I'll 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 dumb it down. <laughs> hey. Yes. Um, cool. And then, if, well, we just briefly mentioned it, but the water polo team, after swim team, got into college, you know, still still doing just immature, fun stuff. Water polo is a good time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think continuing to do immature, dumb stuff is what keeps us. That's 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 what keeps you young. I worked. At the, I know this is not the dumb it down. Like this is not the core profession that I'm talking about. But I worked at an old folks home, and one of the one of the first uh, people that I met there said, "Stay goofy, stay immature. It keeps you young." I like that Gui- guiding ethos, right? Well, so that's that's actually perfect because yeah, you don't just wake up and you're an English teacher one day. So let's go back to uh, you know. 12 year old, let's go to high school, David, before yeah. the old folks home. I mean, you had a bunch of teachers, classes. What, what was what was David like back then for the audience? Uh, <laughs> high school, David was uh, a bit of a schmuck. Um, I, I I didn't really have like a core thing that I did. Um, I did not, I mean, I, I hung out with a lot of kids that didn't go to my school, um, mm-hmm. namely y'all in the neighborhood. I went to a, a private Catholic high school um, academically very rigorous. Uh, I, I, did, I, I was a nerd. I, I can get out in front of that if that isn't already obvious, right? Um, did very well, but was very unfocused. And, and that's where I think the schmucking comes in because like I did not care. Um, I, did, I did not have really any interest. I was doing the Boy Scout thing mm-hmm. because parents said I needed to get that done. I was doing athletics because we were told like you need to get that on your transcript sure. for wherever you want to go to college. I didn't know where I wanted to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, really, and and, and honestly, I, I I was a very solid student, but um, I, I am an English teacher now. I was not the strongest English student. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a number of like very just like serious deficiencies uh, that I lacked for a really long time. And I think that that was a lot about like the nature of the discipline and the nature of like the maturity that a student will bring to that discipline. So I, I, you know, over many, many years learned how to how to fill those gaps. But I honestly, for the first three years of high school, I was sort of aimless, uh, which is which is often the case. Sure. um, I just really it it was my junior year of high school. Um, I was with Mr. uh, His name is Mr. Smith one of the greatest to ever do it. Um, and we were doing, it was AP language, whatever that junior year class is. Um, and it was just, you know, English classes at their best. I, and I will get out in front and say as well, English classes can suck, but English classes at their best are a bunch of people who did the reading or who did enough of spark noting to fake that they did the reading. That was me. Um, who are, yeah, I mean, also me. Like, <laughs> listen, that, that's the first thing I tell students is if you're, if you're not going to do it, act like you did. Right. Um, it was a, a bunch of kids who were interested in what each other thought, um, interested in like some sort of something that we could get out of a text, interested in characters, interested in interpretation. And it was a lively conversation where everybody kind of threw in and, and you know, butt heads with one another or challenged other readings. And we were wholly squared in the text, you know, source stuff. And I was just, it was probably halfway through my junior year. And I remember saying to myself, wow, this is really fun. I want to do this all the time. Okay. Um, which sounds like a cliche, but I mean, truly, it was just like, yeah, this is, I can see myself doing this. So did that, yeah, did that steer kind of your college decision then? Was it just a whole different track from there? 100%. It, it was the moment where I kind of felt like I had a thing that I could get into. Um, and it was wholly removed from all of my friends because all of my friends were doing STEM. Um, which was like very much the push when we were students in high school. I mean, that was, and I I think a lot of your guest space speaks to that. Like we have a very powerful STEM Mm -hmm. generation out of our, out of our classes. Um, And so it was, it was very different and it was, it was very cool to kind of have that English angle. Um, Again, I was not very good. I actually, I was talking with this teacher the other day and he gave me an old essay and I don't know if you remember the AP scale, but it was like a, 
Oh yeah. <laughs> 16 year old David, the year I decided oh. I wanted to be an English teacher, I got a six out of nine on the, uh, the, the nine oh, scale AP oh, essay, just whiffed it completely, <laughs> completely whiffed it, didn't interpret it right. But um, it was fun and it was something I was into. So I, the, the joke that I always tell the story is I went to him and I said, what do I need to do to be you? And he said, uh, first, marry rich, um, <laughs> which, you know, fair, especially looking at education now. Yeah. Um, and then second, you'll get your master's degree in literature specifically, and then come back to talk to me. Yeah. And I did. And, and that was where the job kind of came in. But that cool. that was the course for everything. Yeah, that was the moment. Well, and that's I think that's pretty relevant, like the money piece. So I think that a lot of the reason you brought up STEM, like the reason we're kind of pushed I was, I'll speak for myself, into those fields was engineering makes you some money. You're good at math and science, like go. And the liberal arts is was a little frowned upon in terms of I don't know, parents and pushing and that kind of stuff, uh, which is relevant, right? Like uh, we can Absolutely. talk about the issues with education, how much you just have to pay to even get to a point. Salary is part of the calculation, but um, yeah, you, you overcame that predilection uh, yeah yeah well, it, well there are some dark nights you know sometimes sometimes we wake up in the cold sweat to you know what am I doing? uh that's a bit no that's that's a bit that's totally a bit uh, um no that that was something that really more than anything i kind of had to develop thick skin it, it was something that was a very easy decision to me like my parents there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth when i told them that i wanted to be an english major and that i wanted to teach high school yeah. english um because I, I hate for for being such a strong student, you know, there was that you go be a lawyer whatever. or go into, you know, do whatever, do something that will make you money, go into business, go into, you know, banking or, or, or what have you. There's this DMX quote. I'm always reminded of this DMX quote. It's it ain't even about the dough. It's about getting down for what you stand for. Yeah. Uh, and that's it's kind of a joke. It's kind of a meme, but it's also kind of real. Yeah. Uh, it's it's. It is a conscious hit to the wallet, um, but it's something that I'm still able to do and live comfortably with. And I have never really been driven by the profit margin, uh, making the kind of hoard in a lot of ways, not hoarding, but but accumulating wealth in that way is an antithetical to a lot of what I find important in literature uh, and, and what it can teach us. So that was sort of, it's easier to let go when I fall back on my, on my training, let's say. Uh, but there are moments, it's hard, yeah. Sure. Well, so that kind of push drove you to go to Chapel Hill off the bat and then transfer, right? What was what was transferring like and why did you make this decision? Yeah, so I think the initially out of high school, I did go to Chapel Hill. And the idea was that that was a legitimate enough institution that degree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, legitimate enough institution um, that the degree would carry some weight. Mm -hmm. um, an English degree from Chapel Hill is very prestigious. It opens a lot of doors. Uh, and I spent about two years there, studied in Oxford, learned a lot, was essentially done with my English degree because I'd come in with credits and took all of the higher level. I, I slammed my schedule my first two years just taking these, you know, 4,000 level literary classes, which I had no business being in. I was, I was a child. I was a baby. Oh, they were a blast. Yeah, okay. I met some of the coolest professors, awesome. really set up my whole literary bent. Like people with an English degree will kind of have like a genre or a, a particular theoretical lens that they'll focus on. Um, I'm sort of a dime a dozen. I'm what's called an early modernist. So I got into, you know, Shakespeare and uh, Edmund Spencer and Christopher Marlowe, you know, the big old plays, the 
long 18th century, like Milton, Paradise Lost, like the Bible, the Genesis story, Satan falling from heaven. It's all poetry, right? But it's, it's just, it's, it's quintessential English literature. It was during a Shakespeare lesson that I decided I wanted to be an English teacher. Okay. So like um, for our engineering listeners, I chose yeah, 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 yeah. engineering, right? Because I, it was yeah. broad and yeah, I didn't really know. What was your driver to pick that? Just a intuition? I, yeah, so early modern literature is very quintessentially English lit, right? It's Brit lit. It's, it's your dramas, it's your plays. There's the whole, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast sure. where, you know, people will say that Shakespeare is the best to ever do it. Um, don't have time for that. I think that, <laughs> exactly. I think that like the theatricality, um, the, the cutting to the quick of the human experience, like that is what is so eternal for lack of a better word about Shakespeare is that he is able to capture the human experience so specifically in such a unique way. And that's what I think the goal of all literature ideally is to do is to tell us something about ourselves and the world we live in. Um, Shakespeare does it in a way that I think is really funny in a way that is really accessible in a way that despite it being, you know, at this point, 400 years old, uh, just about, uh, I guess 300, 350, some change. Yeah. Um, it's, there are still such universal truths about who we are and like the worlds we live in and the people we interact with. Like he didn't invent anything, but he, he showed us the kind of folks we live with. You know what I mean? He showed us ourselves in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of ways to take these really old stories and apply them to the 21st century and see ourselves in them and teach ourselves something about the world we live in. Um, so I just liked that flavor the best. There will be, there will be people who say that, you know, American literature. I'm sure it's all over that. the place, right? So like I was going to compare it to a brand of engineering and I just won't even attempt yeah. because it's so No, 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 go for it. I, I think that's really helpful. All right. So like if it's theoretical, I think I might compare it to yeah. like mechanical, like traditional, that direction. It's not your modern American. Maybe that would be more like a industrial engineering um yeah. yeah i don't know we don't have to dig into that though I, let's, the point is that it's very different from engineering and from many corporate professions i would say unless you disagree it is but i also think that considering it along those lanes just yeah. really quickly I, I i don't think it's that different because what you have in engineering is a philosophical like a skills-based backbone right logic-based science-based math-based to to solve or or notice a trend or engage with something, right? And if you're a mechanical engineer, that's gonna be a different lens through which you encounter this problem. If you're an electrical engineer, this is gonna be a different lens to consider a different kind of problem. Literature is very similar in that, or or English studies, I suppose, are very similar in that you have a logic-based, human-based, right? Uh, Critically, critical thought-based approach to problems. And depending on your bent, you will approach that literature in a different way. So it could be genre based with like timing. So like the 17th century or whatever. Um, There are also theoretical lenses within these periods that people will apply. Like if you're a like a feminist theorist, right, you are going to examine uh, gender roles in literature and in a text's context. If you're a new historicist, you're going to this is what I was. You'll consider a text in its historical moment and see what things are going on around that text. And it will give you some kind of an interpretation all of these interpretations are valid because they're based on a a very critical thought process right like you have to work through a problem applying your particular craft um so i think in that way they're kind of similar that was mind-blowing yeah it convinced (laughs) me i was completely wrong 
Sick. All right, we'll all sign off here. Good afternoon. Well, everybody. and we, we kind of <laughs> talked before about that point, um, which I didn't relate to the engineering thing, but it's even better. Uh, and I will include a link to a TED Talk because your, your point there is that context is what matters. And context mm -hmm. is a combination of using data and historical knowledge and then your lens, your opinions, you know, all the knowledge that's in your brain. So I, I think, uh, again, to relate it to, I think, most professions is people don't hire you for your calculation skills, right? Or how many equations are in your head. They, it's, they, they would always say, like, engineering is about how to learn and how to think and how to problem solve. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the case, then, you know, business would be similar, right? You've got your, you've got your data points of what business is, and then you apply that for the, the degree that you're getting, whether it's HR or marketing with your personal experience, it sounds like English literature, same thing, huh? It's exactly the same thing. I, I hate that it kind of gets the rap where if you get an English degree, you're going to be a teacher or you're going to be, I mean, like you're going to write books really what you're walking away from at the end of the day, an English degree with is uh, an applied ability to think very critically about a very specific or several specific experiences and juggle, you know, six or seven different interpretations at one time, but be able to textual evidence and your own critical thought arrive at a conclusion about something. And that conclusion isn't going to be an answer. I think that that was a thing that I noticed is very different too. The, the differentiation I would mark between like engineering and English yeah. in this way as disciplines is that like English, you walk away with critical thought about people and lived experiences. It's the humanities, right? It teaches us about our humanity and it, or, or it doesn't teach us about, but it gives us an opportunity to consider it in a way that I think, I always tell students that the end goal, if you want like a product of an English class is uh, the cultivation of empathy, right? Thinking about other people, thinking about other lived experiences, not necessarily condoning or fully, you know, sympathizing because sympathy is something else, but understanding, working to understand, putting in that effort. Literature, texts give us the opportunity to put that into practice about people because that's what texts are about you know like characters or if you're in a fiction yeah they're fictional they're not they're not real but when authors do it right or when they do it well they give us they, they do give us people right or people that we can practice with i guess Interesting. um whereas with engineering it's very i mean it's it's like problem based right you're thinking about systems not necessarily human systems i think i don't know if that's necessarily like that. fair because again i'm an englishman i like that but that's always kind of well, the humanities, the word human being in there and it connecting to that is not something I had considered for a really long time. So I think that's a good um, kind of way to spin it. But, but getting back to, you know, profession, professionally in your job. So you got so you yeah. ended up transferring to App State, which was kind of more of a personal yes. choice than an academic choice. Right. Yes, um, I it. it Chapel Hill was a great school. Uh, it opened up a lot of opportunities for me. I kind of felt like a number in the system. Uh, I landed at App State and met one of the most important people in my life. Her name is Dr. Susan Staub. She's one of the greatest early modernists on the awesome. East Coast. Uh, world renowned, I would say. She knew a professor that I had worked with at Chapel Hill. So it was a very So you met her before you transferred? Started. And that kind of pulled you? I met her through okay. the transfer process. So I got there and I wanted to take a Shakespeare class. And so I went to the open house because I knew that, that was what I was most passionate about. And she said, oh, did you know, you know, Daryl Gless at Chapel Hill, who was the other professor, one of the greatest to ever do it. Uh, and I, I said, yeah, I, I did. And I had a great time with him. He knows me personally. We'd hung out a couple of times, grabbed some beers in London when we were living over there. 
So very easy segue. I landed with her, started taking every class that she offered, met some of the other early modernists. Uh, and that year she said, hey, you know, we have an accelerated master's program. I think you'd be a shoe in for it. Come apply, uh, get in and out with a master's degree in literature in particular in a year. Uh, so that was, I, I did it. It was, it was sort of a, a bigger fish, small pond situation because the early modern department at App State was a little bit smaller. It's so like the English people. department was a little bit smaller. I, I don't know what the undergraduate class was, but there were a couple of core English nerds in there. Uh, I would say there were about okay, a dozen yeah. of us, two dozen of us that ended up in the grad okay. program and you, you saw the repeat offenders. Um, but that was just a really clear segue. Um, presented at a couple conferences, cut my teeth, learned how to be an English student finally. Um, I didn't start consistently making A's, like solid A's on essays in English classes until junior, senior year of undergrad when I started getting into these grad classes. Because just eventually the, the process, how to figure and align information to make the points that you were trying to make kind of clicked in my head and that was where that fired so I, I tell students all the time sit with it it'll yeah time. well and the passion sounds like it's been there for a really long time but it wasn't a passion for getting good grades it was a passion for yeah yeah yeah. yeah the stories the characters the conversations yeah awesome. very much well so. this is all very fascinating to me but we will take <laughs> um you know going from college then you got your degree your high school teacher said get a literature yeah. degree did you go back and hold it up to him Honestly, yes. Uh, not in, I, I didn't. I didn't. You know, like, hey, look at this. But uh, I did the the semester that I finished. I came back really just on a whim to say, hey, this was not the plan. I did not want to go back to my high school. Went in just to say, hey, I, I did what you told me to do. I, I feel better for it. I'm really proud of myself. And he was teaching that day, and he just stopped teaching all of his classes. And we talked about what I'd read and talked about what I thought. And uh, at the end of that day, he was like, do you need a job? <laughs> and I said, actually, yes. Did you even uh, want to be so a teacher? I got in with the department. At that point? 100%, yes. Yes. And it was it was really hard because I got my degree in literature, not in education. And so lacking, what an education degree gives you is like a very, it, it's like an applied process. It teaches you how to organize a lesson plan. It teaches you how to do classroom management, right? It teaches you, it's it's very useful in a lot of ways. There's this conversation in education where uh, a lot of teachers will teach their discipline. They don't really care about or their you students. you like literature. The, the inverse is so also true. Yeah, but the inverse is just as true. Exactly. So a lot of education majors, I, I say a lot, that's not fair, but the, the worst case scenario is that you know how to teach students, but you lack a discipline, right? So both of those are kind of true hitting that middle ground is really important. I was a huge literature. That was what I was passionate about, but I also knew that I wanted to teach it to high school students and not go on to academia. Uh, that was a huge sticking point when I finished my degree. A lot of my professors were really mad that I was not moving on to a PhD. Uh, the, it's just, there is so little space for like early modernists. Uh, honestly, there's so little space for tenure track professors at all these days. And it really is I mean, the, the research process is a bit mm -hmm. of a rat race. Uh, so higher education was out, uh, came back, got this job at my high school and worked there for four years just to get some mm -hmm. teaching experience. Because what an education degree will get you when you graduate is you'll have a state license, uh, what's called a professor, a professional mm -hmm. educator's license. I did not have that. So getting out of a degree without that 
qualification, uh, you're kind of at the whims of private schools, um, which is why I ended up at that private school. So would you say it was more of an aversion to academia than a pull to teaching or a little bit of both? I think it was a little bit of both uh, because academia, it really is the, the creed is publish or perish. Um, if you as a professor, your primary job as a professor is not to teach. Your primary job as a professor That's is right. to research. So you're reading texts, you're keeping that context, you're doing research, you're seeing sure. what other scholars have said. You're, to give you an example, I was doing a project where I looked at parenting guides from the 17th century to look at a particular parent in a Shakespearean play. Like that's what people will do. It's really, really that cool. It's really fun. Um, well, so, so to kind of make, to kind of make I, I guess, the parallel. Yeah. So first of all, I would, I would agree. Yeah. A lot of my teachers in college at NC State in engineering were there to research you know, English skills weren't great, like communication wasn't great. And that's a huge part of teaching in itself. So then, you know, you as a student don't learn as yeah. well. So I, I, I get that there's, you know, a little bit of both. Um, and the other point I wanted to make what you kind of said earlier, but you could teach the theory and figure the other stuff out later. I think that's what also happened with mm -hmm. my degree. And, you know, time after time, we've got these 20 somethings that come on the podcast and they're like, I wasn't prepared for my job but I learned it while I was on the job. So I think that the same kind of mm -hmm. competition applies to a lot of these degrees where it's, you know, should I learn how to actually do the job? It's like in high school. Should I learn how to do my taxes and those practical things? Or is it like, let's figure out problem solving and theory and the rest will work itself out. I don't know that there's a right answer. Exactly. Well, I can say that when it comes to education in particular, the teachers who are in my experience, the teachers that, I will say give English a bad rap because again, that's that's sort of like most of my friends out of high school. Most of my friends now will say I hated English. You know, my teachers right. sucked. I didn't enjoy it. Um, a lot of that comes from teachers who are not as equipped to get into the weeds with a text. Like there was a girl when I was in school. I was in a grad class, and she was an education major. And again, I, I do want to get out in front and say this, this is not a, a broad brush, right? But there was a student that I was working with who said another a person who was going to be a teacher who said. I'm sick of being told I'm not going to be a good teacher because I've, I don't know how to read Shakespeare. And they wanted to be a high school English teacher. Unfortunately, you're going to have to read Shakespeare. And so I found that, you know, being able to get into the content itself really, really helped. And fine tuning and honing those skills really, really helped. Getting in the classroom, the stuff after the fact, yeah. you can figure that out. It's, it's, you know, like how to plan the lesson plan. Yeah, you I mean, can do that. probably be a certain type of person that's, you know, caring and good with kids and that kind of stuff, too. But I do want it's all fascinating. But I want to I want to delve more into your job because I think there's a ton of other parallels yeah. to other jobs. So David is, you know, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll humble brag a little bit, but one teacher of the year, beloved by his students. Uh, worked at a school for a couple of years, like, you know, built up some credibility and is now making a switch. So just, you know, before a little bit on what you liked about teaching and then on the switch. Yeah, I love teaching because I love hearing what young people think about things. Uh, it's really refreshing in a way that like higher education, I think can be, but isn't a lot of the time because you have a bunch of 20 somethings jockeying for, well, I know the answer to this. Uh, high school kids, when they've done the reading and they feel like they can get in the conversation, I, I mean, they, they figure it out, right? Like they make it make sense. It's an awe-inspiring moment. It takes your breath away. 
when a kid is is reading like a like an 18th century American piece of literature when that clicks for them and you see that I I get so jazzed it, it kills me every time um, that's what does it for me that's why I love this job making these relationships with kids you know hearing what they think seeing them learn about themselves and the worlds they live in um, the difficulty at my old school I, I mean it's as you describe it was I, I it was an award-winning year and then immediately i was like well as as i won that award it was i'm in the process of talking to other schools which was kind of whiplashy um it's getting harder and harder to i think with a lot of private institutions um get to what really matters which is improving the lives of young people and making sure that they're set up with the skills they need to live in the adult that we live in um and and succeed yeah uh, and a lot of times, you know, it, it can be a money issue. It can be an ideology issue. I, I mean, it can be the structure itself, right? Like the education system that you've, you've heard me talk about this before. That would be another podcast too. Like there are things that are fundamentally broken, I think, in the way that we teach kids. Um, and so old institution, I was kind of feeling the walls a little, I felt a little claustrophobic. Uh, I felt a little like I wasn't able to focus on all of the things that I would want to focus on. Um, really ask questions, really get into the weeds with certain things. And so, you know, it, it wasn't like I wasn't able to speak freely in the classroom and it wasn't like we were doing anything. This, I, this makes it sound subversive. Uh, it just felt like there is a new school that I was offered an opportunity in that is very, what I would say, progressive pedagogically. It's less what you and I are used to, which is a system that is based on standardized tests and a finished grade and a, you know, you are assigned a GPA and this GPA is your worth and you'll get your extracurriculars, get in, get out. Uh, it's far more focused on like skills-based transcripts and it's far more focused on let's get out of the way of this final grade and have students reflecting on what they've done. You know, thinking critically about the process, thinking critically about the moves they made, what worked, what didn't, because that's pragmatic, right? Like that's an applied critical thought to the way that you approach a problem and that's going to it's it's flexing yeah. your critical thinking muscles which is also what i tell students we're sounds doing like a lot of gen z bs to me you know what yeah it's true i i, I think <laughs> anyone that's you know gone through school and fought for grades and standardized tests like there's a reason that those structures exist there's a reason they i guess worked for a long time and i'd say there's a reason that they're being changed up, right? You know, things evolve, people evolve. I mean, the skills yeah. needed in the workforce have completely evolved. I think critical thinking is something all of us could do a little bit better job of. Um, but but just to draw a parallel again for you making a switch, I think it's, you know, you as an individual <laughs> contributor did your job well. And there was limited path for promotion. At the same time, leadership was going a different direction mm -hmm. than you wanted to. So like, I think there's a lot of times, whether you're in a big company or a small company or a school or a healthcare system, you, you, you kind of figure out what you can do pretty quick in a year or two. Like, oh, I like this job or I don't, you know, maybe you hit a ceiling and then you switch, but um, it, it's, you know, there's common problems. Everyone's looking for different things at work. And I think our generation is looking for that fire and passion. And it sounds like you have that and want to share mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. And I will say too that like you mentioned the institutional kind of direction where things are going. There are substructures within that larger institutional structure, like my mm -hmm. department, right? The mm -hmm. other English teachers I worked with, mm -hmm. that's where that fire is. That's where the good stuff is happening. So you want to talk about, you know, bureaucratic C-suite disconnect from problems at hand, right? 
this is a common refrain in education right now. The people who are teaching know what's up and recognize issues and recognize, you know, places sure. that we could shore up things. Often there is a disconnect between those two places. And that was getting increasingly difficult to ignore at my last spot. Uh, new school doesn't feel like that's the case. And that, that team structure is still there. And it feels like it's an all hands kind of situation. So yeah, it's exactly what you described. Well summed up. <laughs> at the same time, you know, I think everyone has switched jobs kind of has some rose colored glasses for the gig. And of course, there's always gossip and nitpick and stuff like that. But it's a good place to be. The hardest part, too, honestly, is one, leaving the department, but also leaving the kids. Uh, oh, sure. There, were, I, I mean, it, it's, it was a really easy decision to step away from the institution until it came time to that last week of school where you've got kids writing on your board, you know, like, we love you, Coach Brick, you know, like, thank you for the year. Uh, and then, you, you know, you, you, let, you let them know as they're finishing their exams, like, hey, I won't be back next year. Mm. And, like, That's I, tough. Just, just, I, I mean, yeah, the water, it, it was, it's, it's very hard to do. So there's that whole human element again, again, part of being an English major, I'm, I'm a sap, right? Like it's impossible to avoid that. <laughs> so now the new school, I guess, just a little personal update. Yeah. You're, you're switching cities. You're mm -hmm. excited. Where are you headed? Absolutely headed up to Chicago. So we'll be living up that way. Um, teaching yeah. just outside of the city. So that's pretty cool. Really tiny school. I'm going from a, a 1,200 student high school to a 400 student high school. Wow. Uh, so it, it, it's it, the thing that I would notice there, and the thing that I have noticed there is that it's the class sizes. Old school, I'm teaching you know 25, 26 kids in a class. New school, mm -hmm. I'm teaching 15 kids in a class. So you get tighter conversation and. If I could go back and do it again, I wouldn't. I, my joke is I wouldn't be an English teacher. I'd be a math teacher because what that means is you have 10 fewer essays that you have to grade. And let <laughs> me tell you, when it is 11 p.m. and you've got two classroom sets of the next BS Catcher in the Rye essay that you have to read or Lord of the Flies, like whatever, it, it gets really hard because that's, I, I mean, like kids and writing, that is something that is really hard to teach right now. It's, it is a very, the, the past couple of years, there's sort of like the COVID bubble, right? And skills mm, in critical reading and critical writing are, are starting to slack a little bit. So that's, that's there's a lot of, a lot of work going into that. And it's hard. And, and time and critical thinking on your part to, you know, evaluate an essay. It's not right. Eight, 88. Exactly. Check. Exactly. And it's, and, I mean, and, and that is that those are the worst English teachers that we had, right? Where you get a, you get a B plus, sorry. Like, how do you tell a kid that, hey, your 87 isn't an 88, which is a B plus, and here's why, unless you, and this is what I'm guilty of, and I spend way too much time on student feedback on essays, line by line feedback, you know, oh, like highlighting word choice, and right? Like you said right. this, but this would be a little bit stronger because this is what you're trying to say. It's that is where a lot of that time gets spent. And so you spend all that time and you still get mom coming in or you still get dad coming in and saying, why isn't my kid making an A? You know, it's 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 deflating. That's where it gets kind of hard, I think. Yeah, man. Well, I could go a hundred different directions because uh, the parenting part of it is, is kind of interesting too. But we will we'll, we'll keep it positive. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, well, David, I I want to uh, transition to our special segment. Oh yeah. Uh, do you have anything uh, else you'd like to share with the listeners? I think that at the end of the day, if I could leave everybody with anything. Um, this is truly what I believe about the English discipline, right? Reading is not just reading books. And I think a lot of the time the rap that we get is the English degree is you got really good at reading books, but what is that really doing for you? 
we read a lot of different things a lot of the time. We read books, yeah. We read articles, sure. You read rooms, right? Like you read facial expressions, you read situations, you read contexts. Media literacy is reading, right? Reading political manifestos is reading. And it's not just like the words, it's making it make sense. that is what I think is most important. And that is why I am pushing so hard now for like humanities based education, the resurgence of that in the same way that we had the STEM, because we all got to read a little bit better. I think a lot of our problems right now come from myopic reading, focused reading. Uh, and I'm really adamant about English as a discipline, being able to to stretch our, our thought processes in ways that can kind of combat that. Um, so Keep reading, even if it's even if it's just articles, right? Even if it's a book for fun. Everybody should be reading all the time something. Firmly believe it. It'll make you better. That's beautiful. <laughs> Love that. Well, okay, so then that that is kind of a good segue too. Yeah, so it is because I know where we're going. You know where we're going. <laughs> all right, so this is completely off the rails. Has nothing to do with work, except that David is good at this skill and critical evaluation through his through his work. So David and I have bonded over music for a very long time. I think I showed you rap. I I was a coming out of middle school. I listened to Frank Sinatra and the music that was on Guitar Hero. Uh, so I dis- I had discovered you know Queens of the Stone Age and 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 that was that period and the classic rock The Who. But yeah, the Carter Three that was my first album and you showed it to me. Beautiful. God, <laughs> I yeah. I mean, eleventh grade me absolutely loved Lil Wayne. And for some reason, I haven't outgrown some of that. So my favorite rapper, I I feel like other people do, but I I can't at this point. Favorite rapper ever, Kendrick Lamar, myself. I don't think yours is probably Andre 3000. Yep, 100%. I think Outkast as a whole, yeah. Okay. Which is also really interesting. I think that's a good point is you showed me the Carter 3, and then our tastes mutated in such a way that like they're they're still, they they overlap a lot of the time, but but we get, I don't, I think that's so interesting. I love how that happened. I've got a couple friends who, yeah, you kind of know their taste and it's overlaps, but no one really has the same. So, so Kendrick's most recent album is called yeah. Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. And I would give my two cents, but I think that David should first because this is his job and his passion. Oh. Kendrick says so many of the same things that you're saying in this podcast throughout it. So go. I, I really, it, it, to me, if I could, and this might be, this is my amateur opinion. So I recognize that I could get flamed in the comments for this. I see what Kendrick Lamar is doing now in a lot of the same way that I saw what Tupac was doing, which is mindfully addressing societal issues that he sees through rap and hip hop. Uh, this album is so somber, but it's exactly what you describe. It's it's interrogating how we think and how we read and, and where does truth come from and what's important and why. And I, 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 and he talks about grieving. He, he, he gets raw and he gets emotional and he gets human. And I like when artists do that. I, I think that is where real art is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, he talks about, yeah, it's, he talks about you know, being married and it talks about heartbreak and loss and talks about, you know, gray area relationships. We've talked about, you know, some of the tracks on this album. So I, I am a big fan. I will always go to Matt or go to the map for this album in particular. Yeah. And, and the emotion piece I think is what comes through just really clearly on pretty much every song. It's why I've liked him and through his whole discography, but he is extremely raw. And what I really like about it is he is at the same time exposing and 
kind of angry at the way that he was brought up and the systems and the infrastructure in the U.S. And, you know, it's not much, much more difficult for someone like him than for me and David growing up. Um, but at the same time, he is saying, like, you and only you have the power to, like, get yourself out. So mm -hmm. I think it's really a really heady way of expressing it with emotion while still having this, like, critical thinking piece. And then he's flat out says word for word, like, you guys need to think critically. We all need to think critically. Like, don't just take everything at face value. And he, mm -hmm. he, he his journey through it, I, I think it's incredibly well done. Absolutely. I, I mean, and... and... I should say too, like the comparison to Tupac, I know is not that deep because if you've seen the music video for what is the um, uh, the most recent music video that he put out, uh, with the, the deep fake. Uh, oh, face the it fact. wasn't on the album. Yeah, I know Tupac's face is in there, and "To Pimp a Butterfly" was based on. And he has the interview with Tupac yeah. there, but both of those guys, what you describe, right? Like think critically, rise above. Um, it's it's just like beat for beat, an echo of the Harlem Renaissance, which is another big. Mm -hmm american lit like angle right and this is the context that i'm talking about when you can take a piece like this and fit it into a larger conversation and see what people have said and see what people will say and how they're responding to it i mean that's that's where i get like bubbly right yeah. and when students start seeing that that's when i'm like like hell yeah right like let's get into that i'm, so, I'm sorry i don't know if i'm supposed to start You're fine. Um, but uh yeah I, I mean it's just being able to interpret in that way and get that deep into those conversations that's why i get out of bed in the morning right I love that. So is Kendrick yeah. like our, our, our Shakespeare? I think in more ways than not, genuinely. All right. Truly, I, I mean, use, using a uh, a common means of expression, right? Because everybody, here's your little English lesson. Everybody talks about how Shakespeare is the fancy English. It wasn't. Middle English, it's, it's technically early modern English, which is closer to modern English than not. Uh, accessible enough for... I mean, like uneducated peasants to come watch and enjoy, right? Mm. Uh, I think rap in a lot of the same way is a very accessible. That's a cool point. There's there's deeper stuff going on there, which is also true of early modern English and what Shakespeare is doing when you pay attention to it, but it's also pleasing to the ear. It's engaging, it's fun. People can understand it. And when you take the time to interpret, there's something deeper there. Uh, and he's saying really profound stuff. Uh, like, like, what is the 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 uh, we grieve together, right? I mean, together. that is, uh, or we cry together. Excuse me. Yes, um, that track is a Shakespearean drama. I mean, one hundred percent. I would go. To, I would say that any day of the week. Um, so yeah, I, I I think more than a meme. One hundred percent. Let's go. David, yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I certainly enjoyed it. Um, thank you so much for having me, Eric. Of course. All right, welcome back, listeners. I'd like to recap a little for you because I found that to be a fascinating conversation, although we were a little all over the place. But I think that David is really well articulated and well thought out when it comes to the points and his career and his passion and, and where he wants to go. So my big three takeaways. So first, I mean, how important are teachers? I think everyone remembers a teacher from growing up and how influential they were. Uh, my chemistry and physics teacher from high school, I don't think I'll ever forget because they got me interested in science and they kind of saw my potential and helped me realize it. And I think that that is a big part of being a teacher. You know, it's not just about the the academics. It's really about, uh, you know, juggling the people and, and motivating them. And David obviously is very motivating. You can tell he's passionate. 
And he won a Teacher of the Year award for just that reason, despite only being a couple years into his career. So congrats, David, on that. Proud of him for that. Second, uh, the, the piece tying human to humanities and critical thinking. I think as technology kind of becomes more, even more of a focus of our professional lives and businesses and careers, the critical thinking is a really important piece. And I'm not the only one to say that, but David does a really good job talking about literature in terms of critical thinking. And when it comes down to it, it's about the human element. It's about empathy. And it's really about context. And I think I'd agree with David that a lot of that context and that critical thinking is lacking in, you know, not only the, the media's portrayal of, of articles you see and TV shows and news segments. I mean, think about fake news. You got to really dig into the context to understand that it's not fake news a lot of times, not to get political. Um, and David mentioned read, you know, whatever you're reading, there's some implicit bias and understanding that based on context is really important. So I appreciate him bringing that up. And then the third piece is just so fun to, to look at something current um, like Kendrick Lamar and have David apply his critical thinking to that and get excited about it. You know, it's not it's not Shakespeare, but there's a lot of similarities. And I'll shout out my favorite podcast, Dissect, which has the podcast host has a background in critical music theory. So looking at the Shakespeare's and what he has done with an affinity for rap and rock and modern music is apply that old lens to new stuff. And I think David does a lot of that here with a different platform and audience being high school, high schoolers instead of, you know, podcast listeners. So anyway, thanks again to David for coming on. Hopefully you all enjoyed this. If you have thoughts on Kendrick Lamar, I'd love to hear them. If you have thoughts on the episode as a whole, uh, follow on Instagram, uh, reply, send me an email. Dumbitdown01 at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week.